I am so glad you could join us. I'm your host, Mo Gaudat. This podcast is nothing more than a conversation between two good friends sharing inspiring life stories and perhaps some nuggets of wisdom along the way. This is your invitation to slow down with us. Welcome to Slow Mo. My guest today is Bibi Lynch, who is a journalist, a writer, and a broadcaster, or if I may say, a controversial journalist, writer, and broadcaster. She presents a show for the BBC Radio called After the Watershed. She coined the term whips, which I will urge you to search about online, or we may bring it up during the podcast. She also co-presents a podcast called Good Sex, Bad Sex. Bibi also writes for many titles and sites, including The Guardian, Stella, The Telegraph, and Metro. She's written lifestyle for over 25 years for publications such as Marie Claire and Shortlist and Elle. She has a column in Red, Grazia, GQ, and New Women, and was a contributing editor on uh, Red and New Women. She is a regular face on TV, or irregular. She appears every now and then and presented the What Men Want series for Living. I would really like to know what men want. She is co-writer of the Graham Norton's ITV late night quiz, Carnal Knowledge, and she created the Living's Head series, Dead Famous. Bibi spends a lot of time on Twitter And as a reward, she was voted on the HuffPost's 50 Funniest Women on Twitter. She's currently tracking down that other 49, she says. I hope you will enjoy this conversation today with Bibi Lynch. I'll start by telling you openly, I think you have the ability to nicely say what everyone is trying to say, but are sort of like, oh, that's not very proper if I say it. That's a huge compliment. Thank you. It's true, isn't it? I mean, in all honesty, I mean, the topics you talk about are topics that we all uh, struggle with. Yeah, and and what's interesting is I don't I don't choose to talk about any of these topics. <laughs> it's kind of like I've always felt like it's a bit of because whenever I talk about anything, so like you know the hidden homelessness stuff or you know not having children, it's at a huge emotional cost to me to talk about them. Oh, see. Do you know what I mean? Tell me about oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's they're not easy things to talk about, especially there's kind of, there's image around these things, especially in media. You don't want people to think that, you know, you were homeless for 10 years. Do you know what I mean? And the pronatalism, the the kind of worshipping at the altar of parenthood and the, 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 the issues around childlessness, you're talking about the rawest thing to you. And then, you, but, you, but like you say, you're saying things that maybe aren't, people don't want to hear. So you're putting yourself in the firing line. So you're not only exposing something really raw, you can easily get attacked for it when you're talking about the, the rawest thing, when you're, you're least able to defend yourself. So it's a very, really, so like if I had any level of intelligence, <laughs> I wouldn't <laughs> talk about any of these okay. things. But I think I do because I think it's part of my process. And I've thought about this more actually. You know, and of course, I've, I know about your story and I kind of think you're, I don't want to put any words into your mouth, but I think how you started all the podcast and everything was part of your process too. Totally. Yeah. And for me, but it feels less about being cathartic and more about, because I've thought about this recently, more about so people who know and love me get it. 
so they understand it. Because these conversations are even harder, I think, with people who care about you. Because for whatever reason, and there are many, they don't want to see you hurting or they don't want to see you vulnerable or they don't want to see you in a situation where they want to help but can't. There's all this stuff around it. So, so those conversations are often not happen with the people that are closest to you, uh, in my experience. So I think that I've written, especially about childlessness and how that's felt and the repercussions of that, you know, across the board so that people that know me get it. Does that make sense? Aren't they the only ones that really matter when you really think about it? They do in terms of how your heart is and how you deal with it. This is so weird, right? You're the first person I've talked to today. So it's really weird that my first sentences are kind of about this kind of stuff. But um, they are the only people that matter, but they're not necessarily the people that can change things. So actually another good PS of me being vocal about stuff that's happened to me, and as my friend Gemma said, well done, having a life so awful, you make money out of it. But but, um, it hasn't been an awful life, but you know what I mean. I'm lucky enough to have a platform across many platforms. So, uh, you know, a voice across many platforms. And so maybe people that can make changes will listen to someone like me or there's there's not only safety in numbers there's strength in numbers so I get so many messages from from women and men about the childlessness stuff and the homelessness stuff saying that's how I felt and I had no one to say it and then you've got some you know you so you don't feel like you're on your own and so decision makers can maybe change decisions lawmakers can maybe change law and at the very least people know that they're not on their own and there's there's huge power in that I think. I think that's the whole idea. So I, I hosted Emma Godding here a few weeks ago, and she had a, a new book that's called Olive, a novel that was about childlessness. And she she sort of couldn't say it vocally, so she created a fiction. Yeah. And the main character of the fiction doesn't want children, but everyone sort of knows that the you know the main character is Emma. And so it's sort of like a hidden way. But I cannot tell you how many messages me and Emma got from women that say, thank you for sharing this, because honestly, it's a topic on my mind. And there seems to be this, I normally laugh about it. And one of my friends calls it the the baby time bomb. You know, there, there <laughs> seems to be, right? there, there is a, like a moment in a woman's life where it seems that everything is around, get pregnant and pop some of those things out, right? The entire society is telling you this, You know, your biology is sort of telling you this. The image of all of your friends around you popping children out starts to go like, what's wrong with me? Am I missing something? And so many people, men and women, by the way, came back and said, well, at least you gave me the right to think about it. Yeah, yeah. And I think this is really what you're trying to do. You're trying to say, look at me. I am here. I have a life and I'm okay with this life, by the way, whether you approve of it or not. Yes and no. So, <laughs> so, so Emma's take was she didn't want children. That was Emma's take and her, her protagonist's take. Mine is different. I did want children. So my thing has been grieving it. So when I, I didn't have kids, I guess the expression is social infertility, which is, the, is so sexy, I I'm sure you'll agree. It's the unsexiest thing. And basically that just means I didn't meet anyone. I didn't meet the person I wanted to be with and have kids with. And then when I decided, oh, I need to do this on my own, I was kind of too old and, you know, for NHS help and I couldn't afford to do it. And reason after reason after reason, I'm just about haircut. That's what I was just say. I'm sorry about that. And, <laughs> and uh, not today, but yes, uh, whenever. And so I didn't have children. And what I never, I'm the eldest of seven. 
So I kind of always thought, oh, I, wow. yeah, I'm the best. So I need to <laughs> So I always thought I would have kids and, uh, and my parents both had big families as well, but that was never my drive. I was never someone that kind of you know, dreamt of marriage and, you know, dreamt of having children, blah, blah, blah. But I just assumed I would. And I, and there's big age gaps between me and my siblings. So I kind of, you know, I was, I was around children a lot in my life and I love them. You know, I love babies, I love children. And I just thought it would happen. And then, you know, it didn't happen. And so I just was kind of, you know, having my life and having my career. And I hate it when people say, oh, you know, well, put your career first. No, I didn't. I had my career while I was waiting to meet someone. You know, what's worse? I just not, I just stopped. So anyway, it, <laughs> yeah. it didn't happen. And, um, and as I say, when I got to the age, I thought, well, my dad died. My dad died. And I think there's something about someone dying that makes you, there's a weird creativity around death. And I guess the ultimate creativity is creating a child. And I, so I think that became, you know, higher up in my head. Oh, what are you drinking? I'm going to have a drink as well. Hang on. Look at this. Look at that mug. Hang on. <laughs> oh my God. This is mm. the mug. You've got mug envy. I know. I'm breaking in to steal it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so dad done. So I looked into it and blah, blah, blah. And I was just too old. And that was it. I was, you know, physically able to have children. I just hadn't met anyone. And then it just got to a stage where I could do it. But because I was still on my own, blah, blah, blah. The IVF, expensive. That was it. And it didn't happen, which was devastating and continues to be devastating. And part of the continuing pain isn't just that visceral thing of not having a kid when I, you know, I did want one. It's the way you stand in society. It's that kind of crap. Am I allowed to swear on here? I'll try not to because I'm really potty mouthed. But it's that kind of crappy PS. It's that crappy icing on an already rancid cake, which is you mean nothing. You mean nothing if you don't have a child. There was, um, luckily, it wasn't a response to a feature I'd written because I would have I would have tracked this person down. <laughs> but a, ma a man wrote a comment beneath um, a woman's column feature that she'd written about not having kids and said, if you don't have children, if you haven't had a baby, you can't put woman on your passport. What the F? Yeah, you can't put woman on your passport. And there's the whole rhetoric, that whole, as a mother, hardworking families, it's all basically saying if you're, you're other, if you're not a mother and you're less, you're seen as less. And if there was me and a woman and we both died, the newspaper report would be about her if she had children. That would be the up thing. Even if I was, if I was you know, searching for the cure for cancer or blah, 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 I was doing something you know, enormous and brilliant. And just having children doesn't make you a great person, <laughs> but you're suddenly seen as this deity. And it's that happens for men as well. Men are kind of a compliment for a man is he's a family man. Well, I can tell you, I have many family men sliding into my DMs. I have many family men. They're not moral arbiters. Do you know what I mean? The, 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 the implication is you have a family, therefore you're, you're this. And therefore, if you don't have a family, you're that. We're all people. We're all people. It doesn't matter what we've done if we've procreated. And you know what's interesting, what you said earlier about, you know, that I say things that kind of upset people. It's astonishing to me that it does upset people. I'm totally with you on that. Yeah. I think people don't want to know the truth. Yeah. As uh, Huffington said, uh, Ariana Huffington, the truth will set you free, but first it will piss you off, right? Yeah. <laughs> A lot of people get, just get, get pissed off by the fact that you're telling them something they don't want to admit. I'll tell you openly, and I hope you don't mind me saying this, I think social infertility is the sexiest term I've ever heard, in all honesty. <laughs> no, it, it, makes, it makes you a wise woman. Like, if you don't mind me saying that, and what's sexier than a wise woman? Because so many women out there are just popping children with pieces of 
beep, beep, beep. Let's, uh, you know, let's, let's censor this out. But, you know, if you're with the wrong man, that poor child is going to either grow with the wrong masculine energy or grow without masculine energy, and both are wrong. So it's actually a lot wiser not to pop up a child for misery than to create one with the wrong partner. It's smart. I kind of agree. I mean, I um, there's a woman called Jodie Day who, you, if you haven't spoken to her, I insist you do. Insist you do. She's brilliant. She's absolutely she's inspirational, and she's the um, woman behind Gateway Women, and she's the founder of Gateway Women. And Gateway Women is a platform for people who are childless, not by choice, so childless by circumstance, and and that's a huge number of the people that don't have kids. You know, that's a huge percentage. That's like eighty percent of people that don't have children wanted them, but it didn't happen. And Jodie and I have talked about this before. It's like we were the good girls. We did the right thing. We had safe sex. We tried to do this within relationships. You know what I mean? I mean, and I'm not, have all the sex. Whatever you want to do, you can do it all as long as it's consensual, you know, and it's between adults. Then I'm, I go, I don't care what you do. You know, so that's not a judgment on anyone that's having sex. You know, I mean, I had lots of one-night stands and stuff. You know, we all did our thing. We all had our use. But in terms of me thinking, right, to have a baby, I was sensible. I was the good girl. And Jojo was a good girl. And actually now, again, what that doesn't come into play in any, and not that you want a reward for that, but it's almost dismissed. It's not, you know, the language around people that haven't had children or even are single. I mean, try being single with no kids. Jesus Christ, I seem to have hit the double whammy of nothing. <laughs> I don't know. And it's like, you know, I'm a spinster. Now, how hot's that? Do you know what I mean? They're the words. They're the language. What are you drinking? But these are, this is the language. And it's um, it's just so dismissive and reductive and pointless. And to whose gain? My, one of my theories is when I talk about, you know, if you've got children and it's you're very lucky and, you know, because you've got what people don't have and you also have all these bonuses, like, you know, the tax breaks, and, you know, everything practical around it as well. People get so upset. And I do wonder if it's I'm inadvertently shining a light on maybe their life and, and maybe their unhappiness within. And it's and they get defensive, and it's oh, absolutely. it just always blows my mind. Truth is, I don't know the exact numbers, but in the UK where you live, I think one in every four people has sex three times a year. Really? Yeah, it's it's staggering. And when you you know, I think the average for long term couples is once a month, and you have to start wondering. And I say that with respect to everyone's choice. You know, if you have a family or you have dependency or if you've mortgaged a place together or whatever, you know, you may have complications. But the question really is, is this the right choice with your life to have a life that is so, you know, devout of passion and pleasure? And many, 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 many people make those choices. I I had a woman walk to me once after one of my talks in Hong Kong, if I remember correctly. And she started to tell me, Mo, you know, I don't feel happy. And I spoke about happiness. And we spoke and spoke and spoke. And every time she tells me a reason, I say, that doesn't sound to be the right reason. And eventually she opens up and said, well, I've been married nine years. We've had sex three times and we have two kids. And yes, honestly, if you ask me, is this the right choice of life? Is marrying the wrong person to have a child, is that the right choice for life? I actually think all of the decisions you've taken are the wise choices. It's not a matter of conforming to what society has told you to do. It's actually a matter of, yeah, they told me I should have a child, but I believe I should have it with the right person. That's that's smart. Yeah, that was my belief throughout. But I will say when it got to a stage where 
I thought, right, I'm not going to have the relationship, but I don't want to not have the baby. I did then think, okay, I'll do it on my own. I did then think, you know, I then was prepared to kind of do it on my own. And people will say that, why didn't you have, you know, why didn't you go the idea through or the, you know, earlier? Because I think as well, the rhetoric around it is such that you hear of miracle babies, you hear of this, you hear of that, but what you don't hear is like, you know, how much the IVF costs, that it doesn't always work, the, the emotional and mental strain of it, you know, there's always miracle stories. And so you kind of put your head in the sand and then and only raise it when there's a miracle story kind of floundering about and you go with that and you embrace it. But yeah, you know, long short, I want to be in the, with the right person. So my my mate Emma, I love Emma so much. She's just so you know some people are just so wise. There's just she's just honestly. I'm going to give you Emma's number, and if you're ever down, just call Emma. <laughs> she just <laughs> she just talks to you and levels you out. And I'm like, okay, thanks, bye. <laughs> no, she just is so great. Can you imagine if you actually yes. shared Emma's number Do now? Four hundred thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> she, I think she'd thank us both for it, Mo. I think she would right. love it. <laughs> but there's something. But she just said, you know, here's another thing about the grief about not having kids. If you want having kids, is because it's a disenfranchised grief, which is what Jodie says. You're not allowed to talk about it because I've talked about it and I've been called a misogynist because I talked about it. And. Oh. Um, now, the definite of misogyny is not allowing women their experience. So as I said to the idiot that said that to me, and who was a woman, by the way, what's the word for someone that doesn't let every woman have their experience? I mean, it's extraordinary. Anyway, she called me a misogynist. And because that exists and you're not allowed to be in pain about not having a child, when, let's face it, no one questions why people do want children. But if you want a child and it's going to be a struggle to do that for whatever reason, it's people go, well, why do you want a child? It's like you have to justify it. Anyway, most, you know, a lot of people want kids. A lot of people don't want children as well. But the whole thing around it is, you know, I've lost, I hope you lost my track because I got really excited then about, <laughs> I was going to say something about childless and child-free. Something you told Emma. The thing around disenfranchised grief is if you don't grieve, you don't move on. And with the whole thing about not having children and being called a misogynist for talking about not having children and uh, saying, you know, my experience is this, not slating anyone else's experience, by the way, but just saying, this is my experience. And oh my God, look what you've got coming from a big wide eyed pool of pain. You know, look what you've got because you're attacked for whatever reason. It's shining a light on someone's life inadvertently. It's whatever, it's making someone feel defensive or, you know, guilty or what, you know, whatever the reason you're shut down. You're not allowed to grieve. It is disenfranchised grief. It's not recognised as real grief. And because it's not recognised as real grief, you never get over it. So I'm still at a stage where I'm grieving it. And it's such a shame because I'm 55 now. I don't want my life to, I don't want my life to be a life dealing with grief, dealing in pains. You know, I, I want it to be a, a brilliant life. And Emma will say something like, bringing Emma back to the conversation, she'll say something like, this was just your story. This was just your route. This just kind of got you where you should be going. And because it was so painful, and, and again, when it is something like um, children and societal take is so solid, you push, you know, people that don't want kids, people that describe themselves as child-free, they feel this too. They get this kind of treatment too, that you, you can't get to that stage where you just go, yeah, this is just my life. And then another thing, when we were talking about the, the cost of writing about stuff like this and talking about it, is I don't want people to pity me. I don't want people kind of, you know, the head tilt, the, you know, (laughs) (laughs) it's so horrible. And then someone again, a woman called Tammy on Twitter, and I just thought this was glorious. She just said, she went, look, I see your pain and I acknowledge your pain, but I see the rest of fabulous you. It's part of you. And maybe, maybe 
I think I'm a very empathetic person. I think I'm a very compassionate person. And I guess, I bet you anything, that's a lot because what I've been through. Do you know what I mean? It changes you. So actually, but there is still that thing where, and what, what is lovely is when I talk about it is friends of mine who do have kids will then notice it. They'll notice this kind of language. They'll notice that right now the Labour Party in the UK have reframed themselves as the party for family. So where am I in that? <laughs> That's divisive. It's ridiculous. It's lowest common denominator appeal. They're trying to make it. Do you know what I mean? It's really, it's insulting. And um, I just want people to not, not go down, down that route. Me, I wanted children desperately. It didn't happen to me. That shouldn't be the end of my story. And the same with everyone else that didn't have them or don't want them. That's some, it's part of us. It's not the whole us. It's certainly coloured what the rest of us has become, but that could be a really positive thing. And the disenfranchised grief is, you know, if you can't grieve, you can't move on. And I'm, it's less raw. I will say that. I don't necessarily believe time is a great healer, but it does do something. It shifts it a little bit and it's less raw now, but it's still, my fury now is around it. Do you know what I mean? I'll have sadness about the loss of not having a child and it does feel like a loss. And then I'll be the fury around it. And that's what kind of fires me, I guess. But um, I would love to get to that stage where it's just, it's not even something I need to mention about my life. Do you know what I mean? Ignore me if you want to. Have you ever considered adopting? Yeah. And that's a really um, common question. And I'm going to tell you why people don't like that question. Okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just because... <laughs> It's like children aren't handbags. Do you know what I mean? There's that feeling of, well, A, it's incredibly difficult to adopt. B, I'm on my own. So again, it's very difficult to adopt. C, I'm older. So that's very difficult to adopt. When I was, I mean, I don't even know if now I could, but in terms of, because tied in, I mean, we need to do a theme tune here that lifts the mood a bit, but tied in with the not having kids, basically loads of my family were dying. And I was, um, the recession hit and I lost my home. I stupidly sold my home. So I was hidden homeless for 10 years as well. So within all that time, I was not in a, I could hardly look after me. Do you know what I mean? So I've got to the age now. And I know women that have done that, have adopted and thought, you know, because you do, you, you want that love. And I would I fall for children all the time. I mean, I'm like, God, you're adorable. You know, so I, I definitely think I could have loved it. So it was never a case of not loving and not wanting to adopt. You couldn't love the child. But there is, but there's also saying that a real uh, sequence of um, head modes to go through, I think, before you get to wanting to adopt. So you have to accept you didn't have your own biological child within a relationship. And then I guess you have to, then you then the next stage is, okay, well, I do this on my own, there are IVF, and people struggle with that. Would I do egg donor? People struggle with that. So there's all these stages until you get to the stage where you think, actually, yeah, I would be able to bring something brilliant to this child's life. Because as you said right at the top here, the wise thing to do, this has to be great for the child. This isn't just to feed the love that you want to give. This is to give that child the most beautiful life. Totally with you. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, yeah, it was something I never, I never explored because I just knew my life was going away. That, that just, I, was, I was sleeping on people's sofas. I want to come to this in a minute because I think it's incredible that you're open about this. But So I, I had a friend of mine that always used to say, it's funny that people require us a license to drive, but not a license to have children, right? And when you, when, you, when you really think about it, once again, you know, people just jump into those things of adopting when they're really not ready for it or un incapable yeah. of doing it. And it's, it's crazy, really, because it's about a third party. This is not about you buying a cat. 
No. Even by the way, if you're buying a cat, even you know, buying a cat, <laughs> if, you, if you're gonna starve that thing to death and you're really not gonna be able to take care of it, you might as well reconsider. Really, and you know, it's, it's, it's a responsible thing to do. Talk to me about homelessness, BBI. I don't know if it's if I spoke about this publicly before, but there are really three topics that kill me about our uh, our world. You know, water shortages, modern day slavery, and homelessness. And homelessness is a topic that I've as a sort of an engineer attempted to solve many times, and it seems to be a lot more complex. But you bring to the spotlight homelessness that is more than the guy sitting around the corner. That's actual homelessness of people that that I know that are my friends, like your story. You shared about this publicly, so can I ask you to share a little bit about it here? Yeah, of course. So I, I'm just going to quickly give a PS on the um, adoption thing, just because it just came to my head, and I just thought this was so because I just think this this would show the pain around it. So do edit this out if I'm, if I'm going off piece too much. A friend of a friend did adopt, and it wasn't right, and then gave the child back. Mm. Now that's got to be devastating for absolutely every person involved, especially the child. Do you know what I mean? So that's mm. just that's. Completely reiterating what you were saying, which is this is not a yeah, yeah, I'll do that. It's not, yeah. you know, it's not sponsoring a child. It's not that. Exactly. It's yeah. it's it's making a life, a child's life brilliant or catastrophic. I think we should go back and say this is beyond adoption. This is about the decision of actually just having a child in whichever way, shape, or form. If you're not sure that your partner is the right person, don't listen to your mom and lock them down by having a child, okay? So just my top tip for today. Just top tip. (laughs) Um, So the homeless thing, I mean, I used to do a radio show on um, Soho Radio and my producer, Nick, he used to say, you really need to have like a jaunty bed. Bed is like a bit of music they play under when you're talking because you just keep talking about that your dead parents or making it really depressing. (laughs) So So let's put a jaunty bed under this. So I was hidden homeless for 10 years. And as I said, it was all around the time where I sort of wasn't going to have children. It was just doubly devastating. But my story was I always worked from 18 to 35, worked incredibly hard as a freelancer in media. So that's pretty tough. And um, with no partner. And I managed to buy a flat in North London. So that's no mean feat. You know, I went for it. Got this place. Loved being there, loved having a home, and it really felt different. I've always had friends say that thing of like, yeah, but you can rent. And yeah, of course you can rent. But for me, it was a totally different feeling having a home. You know, I felt secure. It was like I was the master of my domain, blah, blah. And then I was there for five years. And then I had a neighbor who I just think had serious issues, and she just decided she hated me. So she would um, just <laughs> throw, you know, stones at my window, buzz the buzz at 3 a.m., and get everyone in the building down to the hallway and really, you know, the fruity swearing. And I'd see her in the street and spit at me and that kind of thing. It was, you know, it was hideous. Wonderful people, wonderful people. Beautiful, beautiful people. Yeah. <laughs> and then my, um, put the bed up louder. And then um, my dad got diagnosed <laughs> with terminal cancer. So I was like, oh man, and I needs to be my, near my dad. And I was in North London, he was in Sussex. This is the second biggest mistake I've ever made in my life. The first biggest being, well, it's weird because me, you talking, I would have said the first biggest was not having a child, but when you mean talk, it's like, well, how would I, what would I have changed to made that child? Absolutely not. You know what this, I was talking to a friend the other day about regret. Yeah. And I basically challenge people who would say, you know, I wish I've done something differently in the past by saying, had you been armed with the same knowledge, with the same experience in the same circumstances, would you have done any other thing? And I will guarantee you. Probably not. 
absolutely. If you look back and say, I'm 35 or whatever the number, right? And my dad is going through this and I'm going through that and the economy is going through this and this is all I knew. With that knowledge and that information, you would have made the exact same decision. It's, yeah, you know, I think you're right. Do you know what? That alone, and apart from, of course, that meeting you and speaking to you, is a brilliant take home from this for me. Oh my God, thank you. That actually makes me feel quite emotional because that's really, yeah, I love that. I had a manager once who was the most difficult person on the planet and I loved him to bits because he was honest like a razor edge, right? And he basically always said, we criticized him. We said, why are you so annoying? And he says, look, nobody wakes up in the morning and goes to work saying, I'm going to annoy everyone today. Everyone thinks they're doing the best they can for what they think is important, which I think is is really horrendous when you think about it. But he would say even Hitler thought he was doing the right thing. God, okay. <laughs> it's horrible, horrible. But in a way, it's true. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm going to do the wrong thing today. Everyone basically takes all of the input that they have, all of the experience they have, all of the knowledge that they have, and they decide, okay, with all of this, I'm going to make a choice. And your choice was, this worthless man in my life is not worthy of being the father of my child, so I'm going to make that choice. And, you know, or you're going to tell us about the story of your home. I think this is how it is. Yeah, I kind of like it. So with with you and Emma, you'd be like the dream team. I'm meeting you Emma You both need sure. to sort some kind of phone... <laughs> Where you can just give this advice is brilliant. So the home thing. So I was I was in I was in a flat with the neighbour that that hated me and my dad was dying. So I rather than rent out the flat, I sold the flat, thinking right, okay, I'll just get out of here, be with dad, and what I would do is the profit I would put into bank a saving account, and that's my deposit for my next flat. The next flat never happened, but what did happen was the recession, two thousand eight recession, the Great Recession, as my friend Daniel Ruiz Tyson calls it, and journalism just went. There was just no money. It was unbelievable. And then I found myself, I also couldn't work that hard because dad was um, was dying and I was grieving him. Well, after he died, I was grieving. But also I thought people were being really polite and kind of respectful, not getting in touch with work, but there was just no work. It wasn't, people just weren't calling about work. And so I lived off the, the savings. And then I was thrown back into the world of renting when renting then, and that was 2008, so say 2009, I'd gone up to £1,200 for a one bed in London. And then I was like, whoa, moved to Manchester, think, thinking about the BBC's up there. I can freelance wherever I am. It would be cheaper. And, and Manx hate people like me going up there. Sorry, Manchester. But miss, miss London too much because it's my home. Went back there. Rents were then 1500 a month. And I was suddenly I'd gone from, I mean, I used to, you know, talking money's crass, but I, you know, I'd earn enough to be able to buy a flat on my own in North London. And then that was not happening. So an example of how, what happened with money in journalism, a 1000 word feature, I would, the least I would get would be 500 pounds. And I would invariably often get a thousand pounds. It had gone down to some people pay 20 pounds for a thousand. Oh words, my God. And some people pay nothing but give you all the exposure you want, which your bank manager, I'm sure you you know, will understand, they love the exposure. That's better than £20. For £20, you should take the same word and write it a thousand times. I think that's the, the, <laughs> ma that's the maximum <laughs> it is get better out of than it. 20. It is better, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, I'd rather do it another. So anyway, basically, I lived off the thingy, then I was renting, and then I just couldn't afford rents. And then I couldn't afford the deposit to get something. So I ended up, 10 years, I moved 30 times in 10 years. And in, oh in one... God. Oh man, it gets better. In one especially awful 24 months, I moved 19 times. I was living on friends of friends. I was living on strangers' sofas, friends of friends' spare rooms. Now, 
I'm an incredibly independent woman. I am successful. I mean, this is the killer. I'm successful. And this is the whole thing about hidden homelessness. I'm with you. It makes me incandescent. And I, that people walk by, that people don't help, that people don't understand the reasons by, that people choose to not, that people in 2018, 2019, there were 2 million paid people in the UK who were hidden homeless. 2 million. That's before the economic fallout of the pandemic. So God knows what's going to happen then. And, and I cannot tell you what it does to you. And I, for me, it was humiliating. I saw a man on TV once, a homeless man being interviewed about being homeless. And the interviewer said, what's the worst thing about being homeless? And you'd think he'd say something like not feeling safe on the streets, wouldn't you? Or, you know, and he said, um, people resenting me for helping me. Mm. And it was absolutely right. So I had people who helped me beautifully, who were incredibly helpful, incredibly kind. And I also had people that helped me and then really punished me for taking their charity. And I was, I needed help. And it was, Maslow, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that kind of five-step psychological uh, model of surviving that humans survive. The basic thing, the basic, basic thing we all need to survive, shelter, warmth, security, food and water. For 10 years, I had two of those things. Oh my God. It's devastating, isn't it? And you're saying 2 million people in the UK. Yeah, yeah. That's not the people, you know, in Victoria Street that no, are actually no, on the no, street. No, these, these are, are the hidden homeless. Hidden. So these are people on a friend's sofa, sofa surfing, staying in a friend of a friend's spare room, maybe staying in a hostel. I don't know. I don't even know if that includes hostel numbers, actually. I don't know. But these are people that have no secure home. Should I tell you, when I was moving around, I once stayed in a place that had syringes in the bathroom and the boy upstairs would just bring many, many people home every single night. And I heard him entertain them, she says politely. And in that flat, a man walked into my bedroom. I didn't, didn't know who he was. I was just naked in bed and this man just walked in. And I was like, okay. I lived in places that were, you know, depression in brick form, you know, mold, just, you know, just absolutely revolting, disgusting. And one place I went to view, and this is extraordinary, this bloke showed me the flat and it was hideous. It was absolutely dank and dark and damp and depressing and awful and he showed me around and I was just all big eyed thinking and in my head I kept thinking how is this me how is this me this isn't me and then he showed me the bedroom and there was one bed in it and he said you'll be sharing this bed with a man I was like what and he said but it's okay he works nights so you won't really see him yeah and that would that would have been about a grand a month and this is another thing we're talking about lesser and we know what happened in society when people were othered you know, we know what the result of that is. People are dehumanized. And that's, and I don't think it's any exaggeration to say that's how homeless are viewed as other than nothing. I've heard my dad, one of the last things dad said to me before he died was really be careful who you pick a fight with. <laughs> and I'm proud to tell you, I ignored that. <laughs> so if I see anything, I go for it. And I've, I've seen a homeless man be kicked. And so I've gone up to the girl that did it and went, what the hell? And she was with friends and they were like, you know, giggling. It's, I've interviewed homeless people and they've had people urinate on them, punch them. I don't know what is wrong with people that that's what they, they can do that. I mean, this is horrendous when you really think about it, but it, it goes to the depth of the society we live in today. There was a story, and you may not see the resemblance at the beginning. There was a Palestinian resistance fighter. I think it was 19, maybe early 2000s that escaped Palestine, went to Dubai, and was assassinated in Dubai, which is a horrible story. But at the time, I remember 
I lived in Dubai at the time. And, and the first thing I remember going through my head is the Dubai police is extremely efficient. So they captured the network that killed that person, I think within a day and a half or something like that. It was 23 Mossad operatives, 23 of them that lived in Dubai that were all candidates to be my friends, but they were hired killers. You know, it, it was this head of operations in this company, this marketing head in that company, this, you know, this person paused as a, a um, someone from Austria and that person was someone from wherever. And, and you start to think to yourself, at the time I started to think to myself, we're surrounded by people who are actually not what they say they are at all. And now with your story, you also are surrounded by people, which I think is at the core of my, the work I do on happiness and well-being. We're surrounded by people who are a lot more heroic than we give them credit for because they're going through a life that is a lot more difficult than we think. And at the same time, they're holding up, they're doing their work, they're showing up there. And we rarely ever actually think about that. We rarely ever think that the person that is your colleague at work that may not have given you an answer in seven minutes as you expected onto your email might actually have not been giving you that answer because his father is in the hospital or because they're homeless or because they don't have an internet connection or because, you know, whatever, a million reasons. And I think it's, once again, you, you bring that topic to the surface so openly to say, don't believe what you see. I'm very successful. I'm well known. I am in talks and in, on the pages of magazines and newspapers. But life is difficult sometimes for most of us. Yeah. And I think, again, the reason I, again, I do that, why? Because, okay, in my head, I'm like, right, why should I write that? Why should I write that? Why <laughs> do I want people, why do I want people to know that about me? And I guess the, the push for that was, I just felt like it was, I also had like one of the banks here, and I can't even bother to go into it, but they were, they did something really pretty shit. Sorry, sorry, S word. Oh, I got to keep swearing now. Um, just sorry, awful. And um, I think it was because, the pandemic was happening and the people, renters had been given some kind of, you know, protection up until March. And so I guess people felt a little bit safer, but I was nervous about what would happen after. And I think I just wanted people to kind of, I think sadly, here's the answer. She says in such a roundabout way, but now I got there. The answer is, I think sadly, people don't really respond unless they recognize themselves in something. And so I think the point of making that was you're more likely, and this is terrible, you're more likely to listen to me because I'm seeming successful than someone who would be 10 times more articulate than me that is in a sleeping bag on the road. And because you'll look at me and you'll kind of, you'll see you in me. And the last thing on earth you'd want to see yourself, who you'd want to see yourself in, reflected in would be someone on the street. So I, when I wrote that, and I think that's what, I think that's what resonated with people. And again, and like when you said you got great feedback, you know, when you talked about the child is not child free, people were going, yeah. And I say what was, incredible and just really moving it was just amazing was how kind people were to me after and again you know I hate you know I'm like oh please don't pity me don't be too nice because it makes me feel really uncomfortable but people were kind people were generous and people were really and it's what you've said and I love that I'm going to ring you every week and just to talk to you. you don't even you don't need to pick up the phone. I'm just going to talk to you because you make me feel happy. Um, I love that because yeah, I dwell on the sociopaths. I think my head always goes on. Oh my, look at that! Oh God, how could you do that? How could you do that? And exactly what you said. While that's going on, there are also people who are miraculous, and they're always the kinder people. So I really think that I was. It's like the poor are the people that will donate more money. I always think that. Oh, I that's think totally the kind true. Of, 
Yeah, the That's people totally that true. suffer, that know what stuff's like, they're the ones that go, no, I know that. Yeah. Not on my watch. Not on my watch. We're going to have to continue this conversation in part two, because I think we have a lot more to talk about. So keep going if you have the time or come back another time, but don't miss the second part where we will talk about so many other experiences, including good sex and bad sex. Keep going. This conversation with BB is going to continue to be even more interesting. So come and join us in part two.